Well, good morning, church family. Wonderful to see everybody. Uh, I was told this week we were in between a sermon series, so I could preach on anything that I want. Uh, so that's a dangerous thing. But I'm basically going to preach on what I preached on three weeks ago, which is the love of Christ. Uh, it's my favorite thing to preach on. Um, I think in one sense, it's what we preach on every week, hopefully, uh, from this pulpit. And it's uh, just a subject that never gets old. And so we're going to be looking at one of my favorite passages, uh, and that is in Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll look at Paul's prayer in verses 14 to 21. As you're turning there, you know, Ikea has revolutionized home furnishings. And I'm not talking about the fact that you can buy meatballs while you buy your sofa, as cool as that is. But before Ikea, you never really dreamed that you could build your own furniture. Uh, maybe some of you have, but I'm not very handy. I think most of us are probably not very handy. So if we wanted furniture, we'd have to go to a store, you know, a big showroom, and then they would have all the furniture there, and we'd pick that, the furniture, and then they would build it, and then however many weeks later, they would deliver it to your house. Well, Ikea changed everything by designing all of their furniture around the Allen wrench, right? That's that little L-shaped thing that you get in just about every piece of furniture that you buy at Ikea. Now, if you try to build that furniture without that Allen wrench, you're going to find the process frustrating and virtually impossible. Uh, sometimes with the Allen wrench, it's frustrating and virtually impossible. But with that little Allen wrench, you can do things that you never thought were possible. You can build a cabinet. You can build an entertainment center. You can build a coffee table, a couch, a bed frame, whatever it is. Things that you never thought possible are now possible because of the Allen wrench in the IKEA furniture. Well, in a similar way, God's power is a key that unlocks possibilities that you never thought were possible in your life. But like the Allen wrench, if you try to do things without the power of God, if you try to live your Christian life without the power of God, you will find the process frustrating and virtually impossible. But with the power of God, you can do things that you never thought were possible. You can overcome sin. If you're a timid person, you can become a bold person for Christ speaking to him about, about him to your co-workers. If you're an uh, unloving or impatient person, he can make you into a loving, patient person. The power of God can change your life. He can make you a new creature. Things you never thought possible are possible because of the power of God. Now, when we think about the power of God, I think we usually think about the power of God in creation, right? He can make everything out of nothing, and that is amazing power. Or we think about the power of God in salvation, that he can take someone who hates Christ and turn them into someone who loves Christ, would even give their life for Christ. And that is amazing power. But that same power that can create everything out of nothing. That same power that can change someone from a hater of Christ to a lover of Christ, that same power is available to you to live the Christian life. And if that power is available, you can do things you never 
thought possible. And so that's what we're looking at this morning, the power of God that's available to you to help you live this Christian life. So before we read this text and pray, I want you to take a moment and just think about an area of your life where you really want God to change you. Maybe it's been just a stubborn sin that you just have not been able to overcome. Or maybe it is that you feel like you're too fearful when it comes to speaking up for Christ in my workplace or in my, the school that I go to. Or maybe you know that you should be loving your spouse with the same love that Christ has loved you and you know you're failing miserably at that. Well, take a moment just to think, what is that area of my life where I want Christ to work in a powerful way? Because these verses are about God being able to change you even in that area that seems hard to change. So take just 20 or 30 seconds right now. Think about what is that area of your life? You could even jot it down if you're taking notes. And as we read through this text, be thinking, God can change me in this area. So take just a few moments to do that. So as we think about that area of your life, let's read Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, a text about how God can grow you in that area. In fact, if you want your life changed so that your life brings glory to God, he says he can do immeasurably more than all you ask or think. Let's read this. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is an amazing prayer. Uh, this is a prayer that puts our prayers to shame in many ways. Uh, sometimes our prayers are so small because the love of Christ can be so small in our hearts sometimes. You can be small in our hearts sometimes. But this is an amazing promise that if our desire is to glorify you with our lives, to have our church glorify you, it says that you can do more, far more abundantly 
then all that we ask or even think according to the power that you want to supply through prayers like this. Lord, forgive us that we don't pray these prayers enough. We go through life relying on our own strength, relying on our own power, thinking that we have enough to get by with what we need to do. Lord, we should be praying these kinds of prayers every day. Prayers for power, the same power that created everything out of nothing, the same power that can drastically change the heart of a sinner is available to us so that we might glorify you with our lives. Lord, I pray that we would pray that this prayer, even as we go through this text, that that would be the kind of the attitude of our heart as we're hearing this, that we'd be praying it back to you, asking you to give us your power so that we might glorify Christ with our lives. Speak to us this morning through your word. In Christ's name, amen. So the title of this message is Call Out to God for His Power. So first, call out to God for His power so that you can experience Christ. Look at verse 14 to 17. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Paul begins this prayer by saying, I bow my knees. And so if we want to pray these kinds of prayers, we need to do what Paul does, and we need to humbly acknowledge our desperate need for God's power. It's not very often, actually, that prayers in the Bible are spoken of as being on your knees. You know, many times they're standing up, arms raised, right? But this is on your knees. Paul says, I'm bowing my knees. He's acknowledging that he has a complete inability to get what he needs apart from God. He's also acknowledging that God is infinitely powerful and infinitely good and has everything that Paul could possibly need. And so bowing your knees before the Father, we need to just have that kind of humility where we see our great need and we recognize that he is the great provider. Now we also need to bow our knees before him for a reason, right? Paul opens this verse in 14 by saying, for this reason. So what's that reason? Why is Paul bowing his knees? Well, really, he's bowing his knees because of what God has already done. This is a prayer that's built off of Ephesians 1 and 2. So what did Paul talk about in Ephesians 1 and 2 that gave rise to this prayer right here? Well, Ephesians 1 says, You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. He predestined you. He adopted you. He forgave your sins. He redeemed you with the blood of his son. For this reason, I'm praying this prayer. Or Ephesians 2, you were dead. You didn't want anything to do with God. And yet he made you alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. For this reason, I'm praying this prayer. And the immediate thought that runs right into this prayer is actually at the end of chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 22. Here's really the thought that launches this prayer. Verse 22. In him, in Christ, you also, 
are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God's done all these things in Ephesians 1 and 2 with the result that he wants to bring everybody together and he wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be known to the world through his church. For this reason, I'm praying this prayer. God wants his church to accurately represent him. So that's why Paul prays this prayer. So you bow your knees because of what he's already done, and then you bow your knees before him because of who he is. Who's Paul praying to at the end of verse 14? The Father, one who cares for them. We are his children. He loves us, and he wants to give us everything that we need. That's who we get to pray to, one who loves us, who wants what's best for us. But not only that, how is the Father described in verse 15? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What does that mean? It means that he not only is our Father, but he is the Father of every single person. He's actually the creator of every single person. He's charted out the course of your entire existence, the entire existence of everyone in this room. And so we bow our knees before him, the one who made us, the one who's powerfully sovereign over all circumstances in our lives. So we humbly acknowledge our desperate need for God's power, and then we ask for the power that comes from him alone. Look at verse 16, the heart of the request. The heart of the request. What do you need from this father? Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Right? You need strength. That's what this prayer is all about. You need power. You're not strong enough to do the things that you know you want to do for the Lord. And so you need power from him. Now again, what kind of power is available from God for you? We'll turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul describes the power of God this way in Ephesians chapter 1, another prayer of Paul's. Verse 18, chapter 1. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And here it is. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now listen to what God's power can do. That he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The same power that raised Christ from the dead the same power that put him above every other thing that's ever been created, the same power that put everything else under his feet, 
That power is available to you. God wants to give you that power in your life. I mean, that is incredible, right? Back in chapter 3, verse 16, it says he wants to give it according to the riches of his glory, which means he has ample power to give, right? He's not going to run out of this power, and he wants to give it. He wants to give it to show how glorious he is, to see when, you're, when that power is on display in your life, he gets glory. How does he bring this power back in 16? Through his spirit. The spirit of God brings this power into your life, right? Ephesians 5.18, later on, he's going to say that you'd be filled with the spirit, and then all of these wonderful things that happen as a result of being filled with the spirit. Where is this power going to be on display at the end of verse 16? In your inner being, your inner person. So not the outer person, right? These are not PEDs from God. It's going to help you get jacked on the outside for God. No. This is power available to you on the inside. Right? The true you. The new you. The child of God who wants to bring him glory. Who wants to put away sin. Who wants their life to mean something for Christ. That power is available to you. And so ask for that power, the power that only God has. Ask him for it. And then anticipate that it's going to come through Christ dwelling in your heart. Look at verse 17. You're asking for this power, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. What is it going to feel like when the Spirit brings power into your life? It's going to feel like Christ dwelling in your heart. Now what is that going to look like? Well, think about it this way. You know, Christ is not starting a relationship with you in these verses, right? He's already in your heart. So what's going on? Christ is in the process of making your heart to be like his home. Think of it this way. You buy a new house or you get a new apartment, right? You sign the papers, you move in. But that house, I mean, when you, that day you move in, you might just have ramen in the cupboard and a mattress on the floor, right? It's your house. You own it but it doesn't look anything like you, right? So what do you do? You decorate, right? Maybe you go to Ikea, you get some furniture, you put it together, you put your Justin Bieber poster on the wall or BTS, Neil Diamond, whatever you're into. You start to decorate the house and over the course of time, that house looks like you. That's what he's talking about. Christ is gonna dwell in your hearts. The day that Christ saved you, he came into your heart. You are his, but there's many things in your life when you came to Christ that don't look like him. So what does he do? He starts to rearrange your heart so that it looks more like his, right? The Justin Bieber poster, that's got to come down, you know. Maybe the Charles Spurgeon or the John Piper poster goes up, and over the course of time, he changes your life so that your life begins to look like him. And where does he do this work? It says that Christ may dwell where? In your hearts. You know, Christ isn't first and foremost concerned with the outside, right? Not what you do on the outside. He's more concerned with what's happening on the inside. Because you can do all the right things on the outside, and, but nothing changes on the inside. 
Christ wants to work at your heart. Why do you think the way that you do? Why do you feel the way that you do? Why do you do the things you do? That's where he goes to work. And have you ever noticed that oftentimes he does this by putting you in the exact same situation over and over again until you start asking those kinds of questions? Right? Think about your first job. I don't know about you, but I quit my first job. I actually quit after one day. Uh, I worked for Honey Baked Ham, and I had enough of eight hours of shaving ham, and that was enough for me. I quit my first job, and what happens is many people quit because, oh, I had a bad boss. So you quit. Then what happens? You get a new job. And wouldn't you know it, you have a hard boss again. And so you think, okay, I'm going to try a little harder this time. I'm going to be patient. Okay, but I was patient enough. This is just this too much. I'm going to leave. I quit. And then you get a third job. What happens? Another difficult boss. But hopefully, by this point, you start asking different questions. You're not asking, why is my boss so demanding? Why is he whatever, whatever? You start thinking, you know, maybe my boss isn't the problem. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I don't really like being told what to do. And so any boss I have, I'm not going to like because I don't like being told what to do. Or maybe I'm lazy and I don't want to work. Right? So Christ begins working on your heart. Why do you do the things that you do? He's in the process of making your heart look more like him. And it says he does this in verse 17 through faith. He does it through trust and dependence. He gains access to all areas of your life as you learn to trust him and depend on him. Now, like a house, there's probably some rooms where you would love for someone to come in and remodel and make over certain rooms of your house, right? I mean, our kitchen was like that. You know, it's like we really wanted someone to just come in, gut it, do it all over. We can't wait to see the result. There's some areas of your life that are probably like that. God, would you come in and totally change this area of my life? I trust you. You can do it. But then there might be some areas, some rooms in our house, where we don't even want anybody to go in there. I mean, maybe we're too embarrassed by what's in there. And sometimes it's like that with Christ. We don't trust him with certain areas of our life. Maybe because we think he can't really do anything with that. I think sometimes it's because maybe we don't really want to give up certain sins in our life. You know, I like doing this. I like sinning in this way. So I don't want to give this area over to Christ, if I'm honest, because I know that he can change me, and I don't really want to be changed. But Paul's saying, if you trust Christ, even with those areas— if you depend on him, Christ can dwell in your heart and he can change that area of your life. And it may not always be comfortable or enjoyable in that process, but it will always be worth it. You will never get to a point where you've trusted Christ for something and you think that was a mistake. Right? Or oh, I'm embarrassed that I trusted Christ in that area or I'm ashamed of it. No, you'll never get there. When Christ dwells in your heart, when he has access to every area of your life, he'll always do good work in your heart. And so ask God to give you power so that you can start to experience Christ in these ways. So think of that area that you wrote down maybe at the beginning of this message. 
Do you want to see Christ shepherd you in that particular area of your life? Then call out to God for his power. Do you want to see your heart look more and more like Christ's home? Then call out to God for his power. He can change those areas of your life. And so that's what God wants to do. He wants to give you power so that Christ can go to work in your heart. Now, what does Christ want to do when he gets in there? Well, again, he doesn't want to just change the outside. He really wants to change the inside. Now, how does Christ go about changing us on the inside? Is it just rules, do this, don't do that, stop doing this, why are you doing that? No, the amazing thing is, Christ wants to change your heart by showing you his love. And so secondly, call out to God for his power so that he can astound you with the love of Christ. Look verse 17 again. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The power of God given to you to astound you with the love of Christ. Now, your relationship with Christ started in the foundation of his love, right? That's what he says when he says you've been rooted and grounded in love. Your relationship with Christ started by him planting you in his love. But the amazing thing is, that's not where the relationship ends. The love of Christ does not end when you get saved. The love of Christ is meant to be the experience of your entire Christian life. You spend your, the rest of your Christian life enjoying the love of Christ. So what does he say in verse 18? That you may have strength. There's a word. You need strength. You need power. Why? To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. You need the power of God to understand the love of Christ. Or to say it another way, you can't understand the love of Christ without the power of God. I mean, even as a believer, we can't understand the love of Christ apart from the power of God. I mean, is that amazing to you? You need his power to understand his love. No matter how old you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, you need the power of God to understand the love of Christ. The same power that created everything out of nothing, the same power that raised you from the dead, that raised Christ from the dead as well, is necessary for you to understand the love of Christ. Why? Because it's enormous. It's immeasurable, right? That's what he says, the height and the length and the breadth of his love. It's as though Paul wrote Ephesians 1 and 2 to describe the love of Christ, right? Rescued you, adopted you, forgave you, made you alive. And he's basically saying, you don't understand the importance of what I just said, so I'm going to pray this prayer so that you can understand what I just said for these two chapters. Again, why? Because of the magnitude of Christ's love. 
the breadth and length and height and depth. I mean, think about all the degrees and facets of the love of Christ. I think about the depths of your own sinfulness and what it says about the love of Christ. And not just your sinfulness before you were a believer. I mean, think about the ways that you sin against Christ even now. How amazing is Christ's love? He knew what you would do. He knew what you would do even after you came to know his love. And he loved you anyway. Or think about the holiness of God. How holy was God the day you got saved? He was holy. He was big. How much bigger is he today than you thought he was even back then? He's way bigger. And so the love of Christ is way bigger than I ever thought. And it will continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Or think about this. How humble was Christ to become a man, to die in your place? Did you know he didn't have to do that? He didn't have to save us. We rejected him. He would have been perfectly good and holy and just to let us just go into our condemnation forever. But Christ became a man so that he could suffer on the cross for us so that we wouldn't have to. And just do that. Think about the love of Christ. Think about how he tenderly shepherds you through life. Think about how selfless his service was for you. And ask God to give you power to understand just how big the love of Christ is. In a sense, this prayer is like picturing your mind like a little cup, right? And God wants to pour the love of Christ into your heart, right? Into this cup that you have. Well, what's the problem? That cup is going to fill up way before the love of Christ (laughs) runs out of that pitcher that God's pouring into this cup. And so Paul's basically praying, I want you to pray for as big a cup as possible. Right? I mean, don't be satisfied with the Dixie cup of Christ's love. Right? Ask for the big gulp. Right? Ask for that 64 ounce that you get from the gas station. They don't even sell that in New York City anymore because that's way too much soda for one person to drink. And he's saying, ask for as big a cup as you can get and God will keep pouring the love of Christ and you'll never get to the end of it. It's, you can pray this prayer every single day. God can powerfully answer this prayer every single day, and you will never get to the end of the love of Christ. I mean, what a Savior we have. We'll never get to the bottom of his love. That's what he wants our relationship to be like with him. It's a never-ending enjoyment of the love of Christ. But that's not the end of it, right? That's just the magnitude of his love. Paul also says this in verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I think what Paul's getting at here is that not only is there a magnitude to the love of Christ, there's also the experience of the love of Christ that you get to enjoy every single day. This is a love that surpasses knowledge. So how do we know something that surpasses knowledge? Or to ask it this way, do you know the love of Christ or do you not know the love of Christ? Yes. Right? You know it. 
I mean, you knew it, you responded to it. He saved you. You knew the love of Christ, but there's also a sense in which we don't know the love of Christ. We don't know the depths of it because he's going to keep loving us every single day for the rest of our lives. Think about it this way. Husbands or spouses, do you know your spouse? Yes. Do you know your spouse in the same way that you did the day you got married? I hope not, right? I hope over the course of however long you've been married, whether it's one day or 50 years, that you have grown to know and appreciate your spouse more and more and more every single day that you've been married. Rhonda and I went to a wedding one time, and the best man's toast to the bride and groom was this. I hope today is the day that you love each other the least. And you think about that, it sounds kind of funny, but then when you think about what is he saying? He's saying, I hope that your love grows from this day every single day. It grows and grows and grows and grows so that you can look back on your wedding day and you can think, this is actually the day that I loved my spouse the least. That's what Paul's saying about the love of Christ. In some sense, I hope the day that Christ saved you is the day that you loved Christ the least. And that every day since you've been saved, that you've grown to know the love of Christ more and more and more every single day of your life so that you can look back on the day he saved you and say, I knew his love the least. That's what Paul wants. For you. That's what Christ wants for you. The experience of the Christian life should be never-ending enjoyment of the love of Christ every single day for the rest of your life. Because you know Christ's love now, even now, but you'll know it so much more as he continues to shepherd you through life. He's going to make sure every bill gets paid. He's going to make sure that you're guarded from the temptations that would sink your faith. He'll even sustain you through the hardest trials of your life. And his love will get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger every day for the rest of your life. So call out to God for his power so that you can understand the love of Christ this way. You know, if you feel dry or his love feels stale, then call out to him for his power, and he will astound you again with the love of Christ. Or if you don't know Christ, if you've never experienced a love that won't get dry, it won't get old, then call out to God for his power. Ask God to astound you with the love of Christ. You won't regret it. You will find a love unlike any other love. You know, sinner, if you're rejecting Christ, I don't know who you think you're rejecting, but this is who you're rejecting. One that wants to satisfy you every single day with his love in greater and greater ways. Call out to God for his power. Let him astound you with the love of Christ. Next, as you're understanding the love of Christ, what happens at the end of verse 19? says that you become filled with all the fullness of God. So three, call out to God for his power so that you can be filled with the fullness of God. What Paul says here is that when you understand the love of Christ, something happens. You begin to change. 
Now again, how does Christ work in your life? How does he change you? Let's say you're impatient with your kids. You're no, why can't you listen? Why don't you do this? Da, 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 da. What's going to help you be more patient with your children? Is it someone coming along saying, you know, you should be more patient with your children? What's wrong with you? Stop being impatient. Start being patient. Is that going to help you? Probably not. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying there are facets of the love of Christ that will change your heart so that you'll become more like him. You're impatient with your kids, and then you ask yourself the question, how patient is Christ with me? How many years have I been dealing with the same sins in my life, and yet he still loves me? How many times has he cast me aside because of my failures? Never. And what happens? The love of Christ changes you, and you become more patient with your children. You're not going to demand their obedience for you to love them anymore because that's not what Christ does for you. And the love of Christ begins to change your life. Paul says it this way, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. What does he mean by filled? Well, think about Ephesians 5.18. He says something similar. He wants you to be filled with the Spirit. Does that filling mean that you don't have the Spirit and you need more of the Spirit? No, right? You have the Spirit. So what does he mean when he says filled with the Spirit? He means he wants to see your life characterized by the Spirit, right? It's the same idea as like being filled with joy. It's not that, you know, you were given joy. It's that joy now characterizes who you are. So what Paul's saying is he wants you to be characterized by something different as you understand the love of Christ. What does he want you characterized by at the end of verse 19? The fullness of God. The things that make God God begin to characterize you as you understand the love of Christ. His mercy, his grace, his patience, his love, his compassion, his holiness, his love of the truth, his desire to do good, all of those things, the fullness of God, the things that make God God, if you're praying this kind of prayer and you're seeing the love of Christ, the things that make God God start to characterize your life. You become like him. Now, what is this going to look like? Well, it's going to look a lot like Ephesians 4 through 6. Right? How does Paul describe what our lives should look like? Ephesians 4, he says, walk in a manner worthy. 4.17, no longer walk as you used to. Chapter 5, be imitators of God and walk in love. And this will start to display itself in all of your relationships, right? Husbands, how do you love your wives? Wives, how do you love your husbands? Parents, how do you shepherd your children? Children, how do you relate to your parents? The Every relationship, every aspect of your life will begin to change to reflect the fullness of of God. But notice, Paul doesn't ask you to do any of those things until he prays this prayer. If you try to live Ephesians 4 through 6 without asking for the power that's supplied in this prayer, it's going to be like putting the Ikea furniture together without the Allen wrench, right? It's just going to be frustration, impossibility. You're not going to be able to do it. But if you ask for the power that's in this prayer, you can do Ephesians 4 through 6. You'll want to do Ephesians 4 through 6 if you pray this prayer. 
Ephesians 1 to 3 has one command, basically remember who you used to be. Ephesians 4 through 6 has 40 commands. But again, none of those commands come until after this prayer. God wants to give you power to live a life that honors Christ. So don't try to live out the second half of Ephesians without the power that God provides in this prayer. So do you want to see your life change? Do you want it to reflect the fullness of God? Then ask God for his power. Call out to him for his power. Do you want joy even when your circumstances aren't good? Then call out to God for his power. Do you want to boldly proclaim Christ even when people mock you for it? Then call out to God for his power and he'll begin to change your life. Ask God for his power. I mean, what an amazing Savior we have. This is what he wants our lives to look like. He's calling us to live in a way that's worthy, and he doesn't just say, go do that, try your best. No. He says, I'll give you all the power you need and more. And the way that I'm going to work in your heart is not to just make you do this, stop doing this, do this, stop. No, I want to work in your heart. I want to amaze you with my love so that your life begins to change. That's the Christian life. Amazed at the love of Christ and being changed more and more into his image. I mean, what a God. You need to change. I'm going to change you. I'm going to do it by showing you the love of my son and you're going to reflect me. Now, why would God do that? Because he gets all the glory. Look at the end of this prayer in verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Lastly, call out to God for his power so that you can glorify him through Christ. It's amazing. Who is this prayer directed to in verse 20? To the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I mean, think about that. He has the power to do limitless things, far more abundantly, beyond anything that we would ask or think. Now, why does Paul add that little phrase, right? He could say he can do way more than we ask, but he says he can do more than we ask or think. I mean, think of it this way. You get a bill in the mail for $100. You don't have $100. What do you ask God for? $100, right? I don't have it. God, would you give me $100? What do you think God could do? God could give me a million dollars. He could give me $10 million. But we don't even ask, we don't ask for that. Paul's saying, the one you're praying to, he can do more, not only than what you ask, but he can do more than you think. He can do more than the million. He can do more than the 10 million. If you're asking him to give you power so that your life looks more like Christ, he says, I'll do far more abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. This is a blank check from God. How do you want your life to glorify Christ? How do you want your church, our church, to glorify Christ? Whatever you can think of, I can do way more than that. 
you're going to write some number on the line of what you're asking for. I can do more than that. I can do even more than you think. If your desire is to honor Christ with your life, he will do far more abundantly than all you ask or think. That's the context of this prayer. Right? He's not, it's not, Lord, give me a Ferrari, and maybe you'll give me 10 Ferraris. Like, that's not glorifying to Christ. (laughs) He's saying, if you want your life to look like Christ, I will do far more abundantly than all you ask or think. I even brought some blank checks with me right here. Now, these are from God, and they're to you, so don't bring them to Wells Fargo, because I might get arrested or something like that. But this is just a reminder. You can come up afterwards and ask me for one of these. And just as a reminder that God can do way far more abundantly than all we ask or think. If I want my life to glorify him, I can put anything I want in this line. And he'll do, he can do more than that. This is who we serve. I mean, what a God. I want to amaze you with the love of Christ and have your life so change that it becomes more like me. So let's ask God to work. Let's call out to God for his power so that our lives change to become more like him. And he will be glorified, it says, in the church. He wants to be glorified through you. He wants to be glorified through our church. He wants your life and our church to so reflect him that it brings him glory. And he wants to be glorified through Christ, the one who does it all, the one whose love changes us. People will look at our lives, they'll look at our church, and they'll think, what kind of God can do something like that? And he'll be glorified throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So think back to the beginning of this message. What is that area of your life that you want to see changed? How would you want your life to glorify Christ? Let's ask him right now. I'll give you a moment. Just ask him where you are. Ask him to astound you with the love of Christ so that that area of your life begins to change. Take a moment to pray this prayer to God right now, and then I'll close us. Father, we are so thankful for the love of Christ. It changes us. It changed us in the past when we came to know you and had our sins forgiven. And it continues to change us every single day. Lord, help us not to take for granted that we need your power just to even understand the love of Christ. Lord, again, forgive us for not praying these kinds of prayers, for being so satisfied with a small amount of the love of Christ. Lord, I pray for each one in this room. I pray also for us collectively as a church that you would grant us to be strengthened with power so that we would understand the love of Christ and be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, would you glorify yourself through us, even through us, through each of us individually in the lives of those around us that we interact with, and also through all of us collectively as a church. I pray that you would fill us with all the fullness of God and that you would receive all the glory. Do great things in our lives. Do great things through our church. And may Christ be glorified in all of it. Amen.
If you want a blank check, I have some. Come on up and enjoy the love of Christ this week. <laughs>